90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Same as I was yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, we're recording uh, a little bit early because I have yet another install trip. You know, when I leave town, I just leave town for six weeks, John. Jeez, you just keep going back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, I know, but this should be the last one for a while. Yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll make you eat those words later. Um, where are you headed to now? So I'll be back up in Pennsylvania, back oh. in my, my grad school stomping grounds. That's exciting. Are you going to go visit like your favorite coffee shops and stuff? Uh, I don't know that I really had favorite coffee shops up there per se, but yes, <laughs> I'm going to go revisit some of my, my places that I liked. Gotcha. Is there even anything in College Station? Or... Oh, wait. State College? Yep, not College Station. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry to offend. No, I don't care if I offend Penn State or A&M fans. <laughs> yeah, so there are several things there in terms of breweries and coffee and tea and all that. Uh, but I'm most excited, of course, to see uh, friends and colleagues. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> well, that will be really cool, literally. So maybe you'll escape some of the heat. Um, we'll see. Yeah. So we were talking about what were we going to do to continue on for with our summer shorts, topics that weren't too huge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we did the show about the folk sedimentary classification scheme. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, that show was <laughs> actually really popular. <laughs> hey, I love plastic rocks. It doesn't surprise me that lots of other people do, too. <laughs> so... <laughs> We are going to try yet again to explain what things look like over radio <laughs> and and talk about this time carbonate classification. I'm just going to snooze through this one because I like to say that I hate carbonate rocks. It's probably not true and I work on a lot of carbonate rocks, but I still like to say that I don't like them very much. <laughs> Carbonates matter too. Oh, fine. That's fine. <laughs> But I mean, this one's also folk, right? So we're going to start off with him and see see how we go because folk was a very busy man. And not only did he tackle plastic sedimentary rocks, but he tackled carbonate rocks as well. So we got to round out, you know, both of the chemical and plastic sedimentary rocks with these classification schemes. Um, and this one he started working on and published in 1959 and is... Not as well used as the other carbonate classification scheme um, done by Dunham, but we will talk about that one later because they're very different. Right. And so this one, or both of them actually, mm-hmm. are initially based on what percentage of the matrix is composed of something, which is completely opposite of what we said before, which is throw away all the matrix and just look at the chunks. That's so true. Yeah, classics is just chunks, no glue. And this is first you have to look at glue, then chunks. Right. That's terrible. That makes me want to chunk. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) I think it's weird to talk about like grains and matrix and carbonate rocks, but I mean, it's not that weird. It's the same thing. And most of the time, the thing that holds the grains together in a carbonate rock is calcite. Right. So this is you put your little drops of acid on it and it fizzes away. Exactly. Yep. 
And if we're looking at cal- calcite, and if we're looking at calcite being our our glue or our matrix or our cement or whatever you want to call it here, that's not really cement. Eh. Uh, we're generally going to be talking about spar or mud. Right. So calcite you can see versus calcite you can't really. <laughs> I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the easiest way to put it. And that's exactly what it is. It's crystal size. So sparry calcite is big, nice crystal faces. And I will say that we use folk classification scheme more so when we're doing microscopic work. So petrographic work makes this easy. It's harder to do a full classification just by hand. Um, but in the petrographic microscope, spar, big calcite crystals, you see the faces, you can see twins, cleavage planes, all that junk. Nice birefringence is like bright pink with all these cool colors. And then if you have micrite or calcite mud, it's just sort of this tiny, tiny, tiny little crystals, that bright pink birefringence everywhere. And yeah, that's the difference. So what is spar? It's just big calcite, man. Yeah, so geologic <laughs> slang, uh-huh. more terminology. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Instead of just saying, you know, big calcite. But that's that's all it is. Um, if you look at it in hand sample, even though I just said we usually use this for petrographic stuff, um, if you look at it in hand sample, you can kind of see through it. So it's like a... An, crystal of calcite that you can identify by eye right and then i've heard some people talk about like trying to you know taste rocks to figure out what what the what the grain size is yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes that happens all the time i've done it several times this week already right (laughs) and it's it's hard to taste spar but it's easy to taste micrite Yeah, it's mud. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's real gross. (laughs) And that's exactly what you do. Spar calcite would kind of clack against your teeth if you were to uh, try to take a bite out of it. These are all things real geologists do. I just want everyone to know. (laughs) But micrite, on the other hand, would basically melt if you tried to take a bite out of it. Right. Right. Not that we recommend taking bites out of rocks. Yeah, I don't tell my students to do that at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got to figure it out somehow, John. That's the way you do it. <laughs> instruments. Mm-hmm. Instruments. Your mouth is an instrument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't fight it, can you? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yep. <laughs> so you, we first look at the matrix, and then you said we look at the chunks or the grains. Mm-hmm. And in this case, we have to call them another fancy word, which is <laughs> allochems. I love this. This uh, this part I do love about carbonate rocks because you can have a wide variety of allochems. When we talked about folks classification scheme for clastic rocks, we talked about the QFR triangle or QFL triangle, depending on whether you want to call them rock fragments or lithic fragments, and then quartz and then feldspars. So those are the grains in clastic rocks. And now we have allochems. And these are all these fun extras that you get in carbonate rocks. Carbonate rocks, a lot of them form in the ocean, and if you can imagine walking along a beach, there's a lot of junk that can become an allochem. Right. So you can have skeletal and non-skeletal allochems, and skeletal allochems are the ones that you think of when you're walking down the beach, which would be things like fragments of shell, uh, body parts, 
what else do you think? I mean, all kinds there? of there's all kinds of weird planty type things that grow in the ocean, right? And so those get incorporated into carbonate rocks as well. So bryzoa is one of those weird kind of a plant, kind of an animal things, and you'll get a lot of structural fragments from those. I mean, you can preserve the whole thing, but you also get a lot of pieces. So pieces of these bryzoa, which are these weird sort of fan-like fern looking structures pieces of stuff like crinoids i mean there's yeah so crinoid plates yeah yeah so you get lots and lots of crinoid plates um in lots of carbonate rocks so and you can get calyxes you can get pieces of blastoids which is just fun to say <laughs> <laughs> right so like those are the little echinoderms the little sea urchins all their body parts those are all skeletal alicums um, and you can get the little spines, or you can get the little plates off their round little body parts. So, yeah, there's lots of body parts in the ocean. Right. And when you look at things in thin section, it's really weird because it's sort of like Flatland. <laughs> if you've read that book, right? Yes. <laughs> you're taking something that was 3D that came down in some orientation, and you take a very thin 2D slice of it and look at it. You're trying to figure out what that was. Right, exactly. And some things can look very different depending on which direction you're looking at that. So that can make stuff hard to identify. It's super fun to be like, oh, yeah, there's a bunch of shells. But when you become a geologist, you have to learn what type <clears throat> of shells those are. Right. Right, and how to identify them in every possible angle cross-section that you can. Right, exactly. And if you think about trilobites, that's something that a lot of people love. Those cool little, like, roly-poly things that lived in the ocean a long time ago. Um, you can chop those up into a lot of different pieces. <laughs> and so those are part of these out skeletal alicums. Um, everyone gets real excited when they find trilobites in rocks. We love trilobites. It's true, though, if you're going looking for trilobites in the area that you're in, that generally means you're trying to find somewhere to go to the bathroom because there aren't really any. <laughs> uh, that's true. That is what what my field professor used to say. He would say, I'm going to go look for trilobites, and we'd all follow him because he was a paleontologist, and he'd say, <laughs> why are you behind me? I'm going to the bathroom. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't you know where we are in the timeline? Exactly. There are no trilobites. Exactly. <laughs> that poor guy all of us staring there why he's behind a bush um <laughs> yeah so those things make up skeletal pieces and i think that's skeletal they're actual pieces of things that's pretty obvious but the non-skeletal ones can get pretty interesting yeah and so there's a lot of terms that we're gonna have to unpack in here Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yes uh, so we'll just start at the top of the list here and ooids <laughs> it's just the most fun word to say isn't it Ooh, it's. it's a good one with two o's mm -hmm. yeah Ooh, it's. uh so these little guys uh they're trying to think they you don't really get to see them much on the beach um what they are and this sort of goes along with our whole concretion show too is they have a little nucleus sometimes it's generally it's a quartz grain or something like that and that little quartz grain will roll around in the water and it gets coated usually, you know, with calcium carbonate. And so it rolls around and it gets coated over and over and over again. And they sit there in like the seafloor in sort of shallow tropical seas, but they're in an area, an environment that is really 
well worked with seawater. It's not something that just sits there because these ooids are generally pretty round. Um, it's a place where you have, I'm trying to describe where I've seen them. So it's like I've seen them in off of a little island and it's kind of this little tail if you're imagining looking down on an island and it will have a little tail and this is called an ooid shoal. So just like a big sandbar or something in the ocean, but they're made of these little calcium carbonate rimmed pieces that just sit there and wash around. It looked like a washing machine when we went and visited one. Like you could see the water hitting its hitting and just splashing everywhere. And then as soon as you put your goggles on and went underneath, you saw all these tiny white little pieces and they look like sand, but they're not. They're little chunks of calcium carbonate that are sitting there around a piece of sand or something like that. So these are like calcium carbonate snowballs. Yes, but more the size of nerds candy. Yeah, that's a good good size comparison. <laughs> and when these do get uh, formed into an actual rock, uh, the texture looks sort of like what you'd expect, kind of cottage cheesy. It's it's just like the the polystyrene stuff that you find packaged around stuff like if you get a new printer and it's all protected by those big polystyrene things you can break that open and you can see there's all those little balls of polystyrene yeah. squished together that's exactly what a cemented oolite or oomicrite or oosparite if you're using folks classification scheme that's exactly what they would look like Right, and we'll get to how you got to those names. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. Uh, but yeah, so ooids are pretty cool, and in cross-section under a microscope, they look really cool because you get to see all of these layers. They're kind of like little hailstones. Yeah, they're exactly like little hailstones, and it's cool because they can nucleate on anything. So sometimes they have really weird uh, nuclei, nuclei in there, like other little pieces of shell that I like to make my students also try to identify, <laughs> or even other ooids. They're cannibalistic little guys sometimes right yeah uh, <laughs> so real weird mm -hmm. so another non-skeletal thing could be an interclast right so that is not a body part at all um but that is usually they're elongate and i'm talking you know on the scale of millimeters to you could get interclasts that are several centimeters big and these are chunks of the rock that Say if you're on a tidal flat or something like that, where way up high, you have high tide. And then maybe a little bit above high tide is a mud flat or something, which would be very commonly found in a tidal area. So say you don't really get water on it a lot, but sometimes you do. So say in like a spring tide, that's the high one, right? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> And if you get a spring tide or a storm, it will come in and rip those little pieces of mud up. It's just like ripping up a piece of a, a mud crack, right, in a storm. You can rip up those mud cracks. They get deposited out in the ocean, cemented with sparite or micrite. And now you've got this rock that's made up of all these little ripped up chunks of other rocks. And those little ripped up chunks are called intraclasts. Yeah, and this is a really cool process, I think. Like, yes. When you're looking at these in the microscope, you're thinking, wow, this is what, that's how these got here? Exactly. Um, this is one of my favorite rocks. I take every class to see it, and 
I have yet to be excited or yet to fail to be excited by it every single time, even though I see it several times a year. It's this really old carbonate rock that has stromatolites and it's like an algal bloom and they're like little fingers of algae. So if you spread your hand out, you know, with your fingers pointing up, that's what these little algae look like. And in between each finger of algae are chunks and chunks of intraclass that fell down there in a hurricane. Yeah, so it's really cool because here you're recording a storm. A storm. And the even cooler part is the rocks are Ordovician in age. So not only are you recording a day, right? Maybe two days or so, two days or so. It was 450 million years ago. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. That's yeah. that is rivaling uh, Dr. Lynn Sorgan's rock with preserved raindrop pits. Yeah, yeah, that are a mere two hundred and something million years, right? <laughs> right, they're practically yesterday. Exactly. So interclass are really exciting because they sort of represent an environment that's out of the norm of your normal everyday beachy fun carbonate factory, right? So you got to get them by adding this extra oomph of energy. You rip up rocks below it and you get these guys. So then the last one is another fun word to say, <laughs> which is peloids. Peloids. Not only is it a fun word to say, it's hilarious to talk about. <laughs> so where do peloids come from, Shannon? <laughs> there are fish poops. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, so you know, everything eats, so everything poops. Sorry, I got a two-year-old. Everybody. <laughs> um, yep. <laughs> so this is what they are. Um, if you've ever been snorkeling in a lagoon, you look down and you see all these pellet-looking things all over the place, and it's crab poop from the little crabs that walk around, you know, on the bottom. And you can see it everywhere. And it's just made up of the same carbonate junk because that's what they eat. And so it's these little carbonate things. They're much tinier than intraclass. And yeah, they're just little rolls of poop. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also really cool to think about that you can preserve that in a rock, right? Yeah. And it's fun when you know, you're showing this to somebody and you're like, yeah, that's a, that's a chunk of poop. Yeah. And they're like, what? <laughs> I know, you know, glauconite is fish poop, right? And that's, right. it turns into this chloridey green mineral. Um, but yeah, so peloids are are the sort of carbonate mud equivalent of all that. So little crab poops and all this kind of stuff. And if you bury that stuff real fast, it's going to get preser preserved. And so it gets a name. And it's one of those non-skeletal names that actually came from an animal unlike the other two things right <laughs> yeah yeah so why did we have to make these skeletal and non-skeletal designations anyway well i have a feeling this is going to be another maybe not a triangle but <laughs> some sort of division line here exactly so it's not a triangle it's just a rectangle really um so once you make your determination when you're using folks classification scheme of whether you have more sparite or more micrite great and next comes the alichems. If you don't have any alichems at all, it's pretty easy. <laughs> um, so they just become, you know, a micrite or a sparite. 
that's great. But if you have more than 10% alichems, then you need to put that alichem in the name. And it's not common to have plain McRite or Sparite. Uh, definitely not plain Sparite. Um, McRite you do get a lot depending on what part of the ocean environment you're in. Um, you could just get McRite. I don't know if I've rarely called a rock just a Sparite though. Yeah. yeah, I don't remember doing many when we were looking at yeah. sections. No, not at all. They're not. They're, they're yeah. There's there's not very many. So sparite doesn't happen very much. Usually micrite. Um, the other one before we talk about the alakim is dismicrite, and this one is fairly well. No, it's it's a lot more rare, and that is where you've got micrite. Something goes through and creates these little holes. Maybe they're old alakims that have been totally weathered out or something like that and then you put spar in them so now you've got this mud rock with these clear little vugs filled with sparite and that becomes a dismicrite yeah and vugs is another one of my geological what words <laughs> it's just a hole yep <laughs> just a hole so you know um but it's more fun to say than hole <laughs> right but we have to put these alchems into different boxes now because when you're reading a paper and you're talking about carbonate rocks, if you're just say, here's this carbonate rock that tells you nothing about the environment it's formed in, right? So a lot of sedimentology has to do with the process and you want to know what the environment is that these things formed in. And so that's why you give these alchems because ooids aren't going to form in super, super deep water. So immediately when you call something an usparite or an umicrite, not only do you know what the rock looks like, you know what the predominant alichem is, and you have just a tiny idea about where it came from. Right. So what if it had mostly intraclasts? Then you have an intrasparite or an intramicrite. And with peloids? A pelsparite or a pelmicrite. Yeah, so sort of a lot of more name combinations here. <laughs> right, and so like the, the catch-all easy one is when you have a bunch of stuff and you can't tell what the predominant alichem is, you, you get to call it a biosparite or a biomicrite. So if you've got a bunch of skeletal alichems, that's what that becomes. Unless you're taking a test <laughs> in a said pet class, that's never a safe bet then. It's not you can never get away with that and we would require two modifiers so an intrapelsparite or a fossiliferous umicrite yeah that's <laughs> yeah because that's what we do <laughs> i mean that's what everybody does but yeah you don't get away with just finding that the biggest one you got to find all of them Right. <laughs> <laughs> what it does do that is different than denim. So when we talk about denim, um, either next week or on an upcoming summer short, what is different in folks classification scheme is how we treat algal rocks or rocks that are like coralline rocks, which are, you know, a large part of the ocean. Right. So those get called biolithites. Right. And it's, that's it. Like that's the, 
That's the folk classification for those. And as you'll see when we talk about Dunham, Dunham goes and says, that's not good enough, folk, <laughs> and creates a much larger um, characterization for those type of rocks. Right. So, you know, it's uh, alakim before matrix, except for biolithite. Yes. And everyone Sounds... loves that one because they're like, yes, done. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Sounds very much like the English language. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> you can just make up whatever and it's fine. Word will still tell you you're wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah, writing uh, reports for any oh. kind of petrology class is always a nightmare. I'm going to tell you, now that um, Google Docs does a lot of its own sort of, what are you doing with that word, Shannon? That's not a word. It's kind of making me angry, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's, but, I mean, that's it for folks classification scheme. It's pretty easy. Students love that one. And as you see, compared to Dunham, it's a lot easier. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it, I'll just leave it there. That's the cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. And so next time we'll talk about Dunham's classification and the other one that you'll run into commonly. But until then, it's time to talk about something totally different on this week's Fun Paper Friday. Yay. So this fun paper comes to us via listener Jonathan. Uh, the draft date is April 1st, 2019. So you should take note of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is The Long Night, Modeling the Climate of Westeros. It's Westeros. Yeah, I don't watch your dragon show. I had to look up what show this was from. I don't watch the dragon show either. Everybody ready? I'm that person. I've read all the books. <laughs> yeah, this is a very, very specific Game of Thrones fan set of people who read the books, people who watch the show, and people that do both. This is real intense, John. I don't see how you can remain Switzerland in this, but that's okay. <laughs> well, that's me. Uh, fine. <laughs> so this was an interesting one. They've said... Uh, you know, I, the phrase winter is coming has been memed many yes. times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there are apparently these long, long periods of darkness and freezing temperatures and something called White Walkers. Did you look that up too? No, I did not. Oh, they're terrifying. Um, I don't know what they look like because I don't watch a show, but I have an imagination and that's what I, <laughs> that's what I use. They can only be killed with dragon glass, which is obsidian which I think is a fantastic way. And I talk about it in native science, how it's a fantastic name for obsidian, but I digress. Um, (laughs) I thought this was super cool. So when you look at maps of Westeros and maybe it is Westeros, I don't watch a show, so I've only pronounced it in my head, (laughs) but it's vaguely England-like, right? Mediterranean-like. And so the planet is vaguely earth-like um and this is kind of cool because (laughs) this the long night can happen whenever and for however long it's not something that is cyclical you know that in 500 years they're going to have this super long winter you don't know that and so how would that even happen and i love it when people take this to the next level (laughs) which is exactly what uh paradise et al did here um from canada where you just were is they took this to the next level and said, what would you need to, what kind of configuration 
would you need to do this? And it turns out it's pretty complicated. It is. And they you should notice when you read this paper and they point out uh, capital W winter is a long winter like this. And lowercase W winter is just a normal seasonal winter. Exactly. Uh, so one system that could do this is if you had a binary star system and you were circumorbiting it, so you were orbiting both binaries together, uh, the main problem with that is there's no evidence that there were, was a binary star. Right. You don't have two suns in Westeros. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that would be great, but unfortunately... Uh, does not seem supported. So mm-hmm. we need to go to this thing called the Sitnikov orbit. Yeah. So Or Sitnikov. Sitnik- I like sit, sit, Sitnikov. There we go. Yeah. Sitnikov orbit. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is a variation on the three-body problem, which I had to, I mean, you can read it all you want, and you can look at it all you want, but you really need to search um, Sitnikov orbit GIF to watch the the pictures of this. So you've got these two things going around each other, in this case, um, maybe a star in a black hole. And they're orbiting each other, and then there's a planet in the middle of them. Uh, The planet is of negligible mass compared to the two other orbiting things. And it just sits there and bounces kind of up and down in between their orbits. It's real strange looking. Right, and it can be stable for long periods and then break into sets of chaos Mm-hmm. or semi-chaotic behavior and then become stable again. Uh, it can also just be ejected from the system. <laughs> I always love that in that planet builder game where I always eject my planets from the system. <laughs> right. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> so uh, they do some modeling of what stable and unstable orbits might be there. And they use this word. It's one of my favorite physics words, the Barry Center. Man, I was going to look this up. I mean, I can contextually figure it out. And I went to look it up and I was like, nope, John's going to explain this to me. <laughs> so the Barry Center is the center of mass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Between multiple objects. Right. And in this three-body so, problem, this is a big deal. Right. So it's where your planet has its line of motion. Uh, but, you know, the center of mass in a single object, like a car, we mm-hmm. we can conceptualize that pretty well. But say you have a basketball and a tennis ball that are tied together by a string and you grab the tennis ball and throw these things, you know, yeah. kind of sling it up into the air. They're going to orbit each other constrained by the string in a kind of a lopsided fashion. And the center of that rotation is the Barry center. It is a virtual point between those two where the mass center is so it's towards the heavier thing but there's not anything there except for the case of the sitnikov orbit where the thing that's there is this little planet right but its mass is so small it's effectively not there it's effectively not there except for the people that live on it (laughs) well yeah yeah (laughs) yeah that's yeah that's great and so the question is in that center can you create unstable climate configurations that would lead to the capital w winter experienced in the long night in westeros and the short version of this paper is yes yeah (laughs) um (laughs) i actually really enjoyed this paper it's which i don't really enjoy math papers a lot um 
or climate modeling papers. <laughs> but this one's great. It was real easy to read and very easy to understand. Um, and it's basically, you've got these two things orbiting each other, and then you've got your planet in the middle, and do you want your planet to orbit like Earth orbits, or do you want it to orbit like on its side, basically like Uranus orbits, right? Right, and they didn't just do, can we get an orbit that looks like it would cause a long winter? Right. They actually ran PLOSIM. Mm -hmm. So this 3D uh, GCM, or global climate model, and it's... In terms of climate models, it is rather naive. Right, which they state. In terms of compared to nothing, it's pretty sophisticated. Yeah, because it's got some land-ocean interactions, which is one of those hardest things to do, right? But the ocean. So it's got some land-ocean. It's got three-band radiation model. Mm -hmm. um, it has diffusive heat transport in the ocean. Mm -hmm. It has thermodynamically forming sea ice. Right. Um. CO2, ozone interactions, uh, cloud interactions, uh, includes all three phases of water. <laughs> Which you think all climate models would do, but that's not true. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's really, even though it's a naive model, it's still pretty sophisticated, but they had to do some tinkering because now you've got some pretty funky incoming radiation dynamics. <laughs> Uh, right, exactly. Um, <laughs> when they're talking about their experimental setups and how they're going to do this, I love it. Because they say our Westeros planet is mostly Earth-like. And so they give it, you know, an atmosphere, one atmosphere of pressure at the surface, um, same CO2, same rotation rate. But it says, due to the absence of modern meteorology equipment among the masters of Westeros, when it comes to the true surface pressure... And CO2 pressure, we know about as much as Jon Snow, which is to say nothing. Right. <laughs> ah, ah. Um, in the in the books, Jon, he, Jon Snow is one of these characters and he falls in love with this girl and she always tells him, you know nothing, Jon Snow. So, oh, there you go. That's that joke. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I do like that in the figure right above that, so figure two, they show their land sea mask and... Uh, you know, authors after our own hearts, they specify that this is in the more wide projection. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought you would like that too. <laughs> but they say that the locations of all the places are completely speculative. <laughs> of course. And really on the timescale they're running things at, which is a data point, you know, not very often because uh -huh. they're integrating over, I think it was a thousand years a thousand or 4,000 years. years. Yeah, it was a, yeah, a thousand years. Uh, yeah. It probably smooths out pretty well. Yeah, it does. Um, it's kind of cool because they liken the long night to snowball earth experiences. Um, and also they talk about analogs of other planets that should be experiencing snowball earth conditions too. Um, and then take it a step farther. Not just can you create these climatic conditions, but could someone, could people live there too? Right. And uh, they also show some pretty nice graphs of the simulation time. So some of these actually go out to a couple thousand years. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And you see some some oscillations between uh, Earth-like, you know, freezing in the winter, decent in the summer, mm -hmm. to pretty cold, like minus 40, minus 50 in the winter, and plus 40, plus 50 in the summer. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you see this abrupt, you know, so characteristic of chaotic system, abrupt change where everything shifts down like 50 degrees. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it stays that way for, in this case, about, oh, 700-odd years. And then suddenly it's right back to normal in literally two years. Right. Um, which is fine unless you're dealing with White Walkers, in which case... During that long night, the White Walkers would have killed all the kings. And as they note in their surface temperatures, in their snowball-like long night that they created, um, that would be catastrophic outcome for the humans of Westeros and represents one of the more extreme capital W winters in the simulation. Yeah, and they also get these interesting patterns where it's semi-periodic capital W winters. Yeah, yeah. I thought but those the length were is different too. Mm-hmm. Which that sort of lines up more with the, you know, how how it's described, I feel like, in the books. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was kind of neat. But, I mean, the cool thing, just like you said, the short answer is, yeah, they can do it. Um, it seemed like they could do it better for what they call the tennis ball configuration, where the planet is spinning not how Earth does, but kind of on its side, right? Um, right. But there are some caveats to this right and i think every paper should have to have a section labeled model caveats where we (laughs) open the door and you know and uh, pull the skeletons out of the closet and say these are the things that might not work so well right exactly um because one of the things that they were doing was saying well could people live here too like it's one thing to create that climate but is this a system where people could live and so (laughs) um in one of the scenarios where you have this planet in between these two suns, the planet, when it crosses the ecliptic, while it can create long capital W winters in other times, when it crosses the ecliptic, it gets burning, burning hot. And so (laughs) I love it because their caveat is, so you'd have to protect yourself from this or else people could, people would die. Like you couldn't live on the surface during this ecliptic crossing. And they say, well, you know, in Westerosi history, we've made the wall, which is this huge ice structure, and it's imbued with all this magic. And they say magic is just technology that people don't understand yet. And so it's possible that the children of the forest were actually extremely technologically advanced. And if they could create the wall, then they could create large-scale engineering feats and orbital megastructures that would essentially protect the planet during these from the solar radiation and insulation that would be crazy during the ecliptic crossing. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Yet another explanation. Uh, I love it so much. <laughs> um, so yeah, they do it. I mean, there's a lot of different outcomes they have, but that one was the best one. And <laughs> also as usual in these, the acknowledgements are pretty good too. Right. <laughs> so, First of all, they would like to thank George R. R. Martin. Mm-hmm. Obviously. They even thank HBO. So obviously these are the camp that both read the books and watched the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but they extend their gratitude to the system administrators of our local computer cluster for not noticing or turning a blind eye to this egregious misuse of resources. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. they also acknowledge the local coffee shop, too. Right. <laughs> um, 
one more thing in here because this is the importance of understanding orbital parameters is that they say that you could easily achieve this if you take into account other things like eccentricity and tilt, which I thought was really interesting. Right, a whole nother set of parameters to explore. Right, exactly. Hopefully somebody does that. This is a great paper. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, John. I know you haven't read these books, but they're so good. And I just, <laughs> so much stuff in this paper. First off, their last sentence says, for these planets, we predict that winter is coming. But if you go to the appendix in here, they outline all the math. Maybe that's why I like the paper so much. All the math is in the appendix where you don't have to look at it. Um, but the last appendice add-on, A7, just says Hodor, 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 Hodor equals Hodor. There you <laughs> which, go. Which is real good. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> you know, if they, they had a climate model with 10 levels, they could have made Hodor graphs. Oh. Just, just in the show. Just in. <laughs> so, if you would like to run Plossim and see what <laughs> orbital configuration you can get to create a long winter, we would love to see your results. Shannon, how can they send those in? Send those in show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Don't kill me for mispronouncing these Game of Thrones things, please. Uh, send those comments to at geo underscore Lehman on Twitter. <laughs> I am at Shannon Doolin. Together we are at Don't Panic Geo. Uh, we're in the Slack chat room on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our supporters on Patreon. We appreciate you keeping us going. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.